Frontiersman Hugh Glass was mauled by a grizzly bear in 1823. Left for dead, stripped of his belongings, and covered in maggots, he defied all odds and made a 250-mile journey on foot through hostile territory. But that's only half the story. We got pirates. We got mountain men. We got a whole bunch of Native Americans. And most importantly, we got Leonardo DiCaprio. Okay. Who was Hugh Glass? Where'd he come from? Was he born with the bark on or did he have to work at it? And how many pirate jokes am I going to be able to fit into one episode? Find out all this and more on this newest. If any of this sounds familiar, then you've been listening to this podcast for a long time. Edition of Bloody Beaver Podcast. Hugh Glass was born sometime around 1783 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Or was it Ireland? I don't know. As usual, when it comes to these characters I cover on the podcast, there's not a whole lot anyone knows for sure when it comes to the early life of Hugh Glass. No idea who his parents were or what they did for a living or anything else about his childhood other than he may have possibly served as an apprentice for a rifle maker. And at some point, he took to working at sea as a sailor. Disclaimer. What information we do have on the first 30 years of Hugh's life stem from a mountain man, a priest, and a paleontologist. And no, that's not a setup for a joke. Believe me, I tried. I just couldn't come up with a decent punchline. Sorry, y'all, I'm not a great comedian like Bill Burr, Tim Dillon, or Brandon Schaub. So here's the thing. There was a fur trapper named George Yount, who spent time with Hugh Glass back in the day. Years later, Yount would recount his stories of Glass, as told to him by the man himself, to a Catholic priest named Orange Clark. And orange, you glad that's not your name. Skip ahead to the year 1923 and a paleontologist, that's a fancy way of saying a person that looks at old bones, by the name of Charles Camp, got a hold of Yount's recollections as transcribed by the good Reverend Clark. So basically we're dealing with another big game of Wild West Telephone here. Years after Yount retired from the fur trade, he passed these stories to the priest who wrote them all down in what's described as a disconnected and unorganized fashion. And then, 72 years after that, Charles Camp got to connecting and organizing. And this is where our knowledge of Hugh's early life comes from. So just something to keep in mind. Our sources may not be perfect, but let's be honest, neither am I. All things considered, what information we do have really isn't all that bad. That said, these old mountain men were notorious for their tall tales. As far as I know, none of this information I have on Hugh's life before he got involved in the fur trade is verifiable. It could be 100% true or 100% fabricated. Or as likely tends to be the case, the truth may lie somewhere in the middle. Once we get into Hugh's time as a trapper, things get a little less murky, as we then have eyewitness accounts, trading post ledgers, stuff like that. Okay, just had to get that out of the way. Without further ado, let's get right down to it. We don't know how long Glass worked as a sailor, but at some point, probably around the year 1816, his ship was seized by pirates. And not just any basic bitch run-of-the-mill pirates. Nah. Glass's ship was captured by the pirate, the infamous Jean Lafitte, a French privateer who plied his trade in the waters of the Gulf of Mexico. Basically, Hugh was given the choice. Join us and become a pirate or die. And he chose piracy. Of course he did. Who wouldn't? Not only does it look really cool on your LinkedIn profile, but it also beats walking the plank. Still, though, as fun as being a pirate sounds to me, it wasn't all yo-ho-ho and a bottle of rum. At least not for Hugh. Matter of fact, he despised his life as a pirate. And once said, quote, I hate being called matey. My name's Hugh. That's the name my parents gave me, and by God, it's the name I prefer. But these rum-swilling sons of bitches refuse to address me by my proper name. Every time I bring it up, they just laugh their stupid little pirate laughs, drink more rum, and say, Arr! Yeah, be a matey now. Arr! P.S. Parrots are stupid. End quote. And no, Hugh Glass uh, never said any of that. At least not that I'm aware of. What he did say was the following. Quote, The reality of being a pirate far topped in horror any vision of the trade possible to one who has not been enmeshed in it. There are monstrosities of conduct belonging to a society which has cut itself off from honor and compassion that outsiders can only understand at the price of forced association. He also talked about how cruel murders were perpetrated daily. Now, I found this interesting. Hugh Glass spent years living among the so-called savage Native Americans, but it was the white men, these pirates, that he remembered as being the true barbarians. Legend has it that Glass was burdened with this forced association for about two years before he was able to escape. Back in those days, Galveston Island, a barrier island just off the coast of Texas, was known as Campeche. 
This was Jean Lafitte's stronghold, a pirate kingdom full of guys who, in my mind at least, walked around with parrots on their shoulders, swilling rum, and talking about booty and shivering each other's timbers. A society where one's worth was based not on the color of their skin or the content of their character, but on how long their peg legs were and what type of wood they were made of, or simply how unique their eye patches were, who had the sharpest hook. Basically, Campeche was the type of place that pirates could go to to get a little bit of ar and ar. Yeah, I went there. What's a pirate's favorite food? Barbecue. Why'd the pirate go to the Apple store? To buy an eye patch. What's a pirate's favorite movie? Booty and the Beast. Be careful, it's R rated. Sorry, just trying to bring a little bit of jolly to your Roger, if you know what I mean. Anyway, Campeche would remain a pirate stronghold until the Navy came and drove Lafitte out in 1821. But by that time, Hugh Glass was already gone. Again, not sure about the exact year, but probably sometime between 1818 and 1820. Hugh and a like-minded companion had simply had enough and basically went on strike. Said they didn't want to be pirates anymore. This obviously was unacceptable. They were due to stand trial before Jean Lafitte himself when they returned to Campeche, but Hugh wasn't about to take his chances at no pirate court. And I can't say I blame him. So while anchored in a little cove somewhere off the coast of mainland Texas, Glass and his buddy made good their escape. They jumped ship and swam for shore, and then somehow made their way through what's now called Texas and onto the southern Great Plains. Now this was back when Texas was still officially part of Spain. This was also before Stephen F. Austin and the Great Migration of Americans. I'd love to get a map of Texas pre-1820 just to see what settlements were already there. My friend Michael from the podcast Texas History Lessons pointed out to me that there was a settlement of sorts, a military post at Anahuac, not far from Galveston. But it looks like this was abandoned in 1816. Further north, where Liberty, Texas now stands, there was a French colony that was occupied by American squatters as early as 1818. But as far as I know, Glass and his buddy came across no settlements as they traveled north. And to be honest, I can only guess as to what their route was. Maybe they followed the Brazos or Trinity Rivers, or maybe they just blazed their own trail, as to remain undetected. And if their goal was just to escape the pirates, then I'm kind of curious as to why they even headed north. Why not head east to New Orleans, or even west to some of the Spanish missions, and seek refuge? Or maybe they were aiming for St. Louis and got a little off track, I don't know. Either way, the runaway duo would have initially found themselves smack dab in the middle of territory claimed by the Karankawa, a tribe rumored to be cannibals. A distinction they shared with the Tonkawa, who resided further north, whose land glass would eventually have to pass through as well. Now, nowadays, we have evidence to suggest that there really wasn't a whole lot of cannibalism going on among these tribes. But I'm sure Glass had heard the rumors and was probably taking the proper precautions. Hell, once he and his buddy passed through Tonkawa territory, they even successfully slid past the Comanche and Kiowa without incident. Once they made it out of Texas, though, their luck ran out. Somewhere in present-day northern Kansas or southern Nebraska, they were taken captive by the Pawnee. Now, the Pawnee tribe would eventually become allies of the United States and even help the military fight against other tribes like the Lakota and the Cheyenne. But in 1818 or 1819 or so, they wouldn't have necessarily been so friendly to a couple of strange white guys just gallivanting through their territory. And just to reinforce that, they did promptly subject Hugh's companion to a ritualistic sacrifice. They burned the man alive at the stake. Pirate life not looking all that bad now, huh? Fortunately for Hugh, he would not suffer the same fate. He actually got adopted by the chief of the band, and much like his time with Jean Lafitte's pirates, he had to adapt to a different way of life. Unlike his time as a pirate, however, he actually seemed to embrace this life with the Pawnee. Ended up living with them for a few years. He took a Pawnee wife, he learned their language, their culture, even participated in Pawnee war parties against other tribes. I'm betting he might have even had a little Pawnee baby or two. Now this was no slave situation. Like I said, he was adopted. But then again, I do wonder just how much freedom he actually had. And how much did they really trust him? You know, could he just pick up and leave without any repercussions? Eventually, he would depart the tribe after going to St. Louis with a Pawnee delegation in the year 1821. When they returned back to their villages, they would do so without Hugh Glass. In February of the following year, 1822, an ad was placed in the Missouri Gazette. They called for 100 enterprising young men to ascend the River Missouri and there be employed for anywhere from one to three years. The work that beckoned these men was the fur trade. Future legends like Jim Bridger, William Sublett, Jed Smith, and our very own Hugh Glass would all respond to these ads and sign on to head upriver. Now, some of these guys were inexperienced, like Jim Bridger, for instance. He was still a teenager. 
But you did have guys like Glass who were already somewhat seasoned frontiersmen. By this point in Hugh's life, he would have already been an expert when it came to the culture of the American Indians who populated the Great Plains region. He was fluent in Pawnee and the universal sign language of the Plains. He could hunt, he could track, he could navigate the wilderness at ease, locate water, and he knew what dangers to keep his eyes open for. With a skill set like that, it's a no-brainer that Ashley would hire him on to head up the Missouri, trap and trade for fur. Now before we go any further, let's go ahead and address the elephant in the room. A very small amount of you are probably getting deja vu right now. Reason being, if you've been listening to Bloody Beaver Podcast from the very beginning, you'll probably remember that my first ever episode was on Hugh Glass. And when I say it was horrible, words cannot describe just how bad that first episode was. It was so bad, I sent it to a friend of mine, somebody I had known since I was a teenager, and that person has not spoken to me since. This episode obviously is a lot different, and I'm coming with a lot more information. I just felt like it was time to finally do Hugh Glass justice. So, what was it that compelled Hugh Glass and General William Ashley and all those other enterprising men to head up the Missouri River? Beaver, that's what. Sweet, sweet beaver. Thanks to fashion trends in Europe and the eastern United States, beaver pelts were at an all-time high demand in the early 19th century. And for some people, this became a very lucrative business. Hat makers in particular made their best felt hats out of beaver hides. These hats were highly sought after, thus driving a strong economic demand for the pelts. And anytime there's a demand, you're always going to find someone willing to supply that demand, almost at any cost. That's where the fur trappers like Hugh Glass came into play. Now, this fur trade obviously still exists today. Even nowadays, people still trap beaver. But the Mountain Man era, I would say, began with Ashley's first expedition in 1822 and ended sometime around the year 1840 when fur prices plummeted. And of course, by that time, the Wild West was finally being opened up for all the genteel folks. But in our timeline, we're a long way away from that. It's the spring of 1823 and Ashley's men, Glass included, were making their way up the Missouri in a couple of keel boats. They'd push through Lakota territory and eventually find themselves in the land of the Arikara, somewhere in present-day South Dakota. The Arikara, uh, or Re, as they were often called by the mountain men, R-E-E, were a semi-nomadic agricultural people. They lived in round earth lodges, and their crops, like corn, squash, and beans, were a staple to their diet. Lewis and Clark encountered this tribe way back in the day and encouraged them to send a delegation to Washington, D.C. in 1805 to speak with the Great White Father. And the Great White Father was the very awkward-as-hell way of saying President of the United States, as opposed to me, the Great White Daddy, or the Papi Grande Blanco, as my Mexican brethren call me. The Arikara did send a delegation, but their chief, a guy named Anka Decharo, got sick and died. This, along with more encroachment on their land, caused some bad blood between the tribe and the trappers, who would soon start trickling through their territory. Matter of fact, the Arikara had just suffered several of their own killed in a skirmish with a different group of trappers shortly before Ashley and his men headed upriver. To say the tribe was a mite touchy in May of 1823, when Ashley halted his kill boats at their village, might just be an understatement. Hugh Glass wasn't the only future legend in this expedition, by the way. You also had Jedediah Smith, the Bible-toting explorer, as well as Edward Rose, one of the few black mountain men who would kind of become famous. And, of course, you had the legendary Jim Bridger. Despite the tension, Ashley was able to purchase some horses from the Arikara, after which he split his men into two groups, one staying with the boats while the other, which included Jed Smith and Hugh Glass, would stay on shore and tend to the horses. Now, there's a few versions of what happened next, but here's just a quick summary. Ed Rose and a guy named Stevens headed into the village to see about buying some pussy. Sorry for those of you with sensitive ears, but that is what they were up to. There's no nice way of saying it. Something went awry, and pretty soon, people were screaming, and Rose was hauling ass back to the boats with the news that Stevens had just been killed. It's important to note that Ashley had already been informed that some Arikara warriors were planning an attack on the expedition. So he already kind of had his guard up without making it too obvious. I'm really surprised he even allowed two of his men to go into the village, but you know how that goes. Anyways, by sunup, the men still on shore found themselves surrounded by angry re-warriors who wasted no time on opening up on the would-be fur trappers. Things quickly turned chaotic. Both men and horses began dropping like flies. Ashley was frantically trying to maneuver his boats closer to the shore, while at the same time men were jumping into the river trying to get to him. Within just 15 minutes, there were 14 dead trappers and 11 more wounded, one of whom was our Hugh Glass, who took either a ball or an arrow in one of his legs. And we actually have a letter that Glass wrote to one of the parents of one of the dead men, a guy named John Gardner. 
It reads as follows, quote, Dear Sir, My painful duty is to tell you of the death of your son who fell at the hands of Indians on the 2nd of June in the early morning. He lived a little while after he was shot and asked me to inform you of his sad fate. We brought him to the ship where he soon died. Mr. Smith, a young man of our company, made powerful prayer that moved us all greatly, and I am persuaded that John died in peace. His body we buried with others near this camp and marked the grave with a log. His things we will send to you. The savages are greatly treacherous. We traded with them as friends, but after the great storm of rain and thunder, they came at us before light and many were hurt. I myself was shot in the leg. Master Ashley is bound to stay in these parts till the traitors are rightly punished. Your obedient servant, Hugh Glass. Now Ashley's plan to head further upriver was temporarily put on ice following this fight. They had to regroup and lick their wounds and figure out how the hell they were going to make it past the Arikara safely. But old Hugh Glass wasn't just talking when he said that Ashley wanted to make sure the Rees were punished. Those who were seriously wounded were sent back to St. Louis along with some of the others that had just gotten their fill of the frontier life. Those who were left waited patiently for reinforcements as they regrouped and planned their revenge. Sure enough, word spread. It wasn't too long before our Colonel Henry Leavenworth, the commander at Fort Atkinson in present-day Nebraska, decided to take matters into his own hands. He led a group of over 200 soldiers upriver towards the Arakara, a group whose numbers grew along the way with fur trappers, including some of Ashley's men, and several hundred Lakota warriors who didn't get along too well with the Ree. Now, Glass was not part of this punitive expedition. He was still at that leg hill either at Fort Kiowa or down there at Fort Atkinson. But he didn't really miss out on much. There were a few skirmishes, and Leavenworth ended up talking peace with the Arikara, an action that greatly disgusted the Lakota to the point that they just decided to go on home. They were there to fight, not dilly-dally around and talk peace. An uneasy truce was agreed upon, but the following day, some of the trappers, who didn't think that the Reed were adequately punished, returned and set fire to a large, recently abandoned Arikara village. So much for peace. Not only did they burn down the entire village, but they also destroyed any chance at trade on the Missouri any time in the near future. From that point forward, the Arikara were out for blood. A turn of events that prompted Ashley and his business partner, Andrew Henry, to abandon the river altogether and proceed over land. They'd send one group, led by Jedediah Smith, west to make friends with the Crow tribe and hopefully establish a presence there in their beaver-rich waters. The other group was led by Henry himself and comprised of somewhere between 17 and 30 men, one of which was Hugh Glass. Their main priority was to head northwest to Fort Henry as quickly as possible. Now, this little trading post was located up in present-day North Dakota, just south of where the Yellowstone meets the Missouri River. Prime beaver country, but also smack dab in the middle of hostile territory. As such, Henry was worried about the safety of his men that were already up there, hence the rush. Unfortunately, the going was slow, thanks to a shortage of horses. The men made the journey on foot, using what few mounts they had as pack animals. Not only were the trappers worried about more problems from the Arikara, but they also feared the Blackfeet as well. A tribe that had been a thorn in the fur trade ever since they clashed with Captain Lewis 17 years prior. What the men under Henry weren't expecting was any problems from their allies, like the Mandan or the Hadasta. Imagine their surprise when they were suddenly attacked by a war party comprised of both tribes, a fight that resulted in two more men killed and another two wounded. Now, this was late August of 1823. They've already had their plans to trade on the Missouri squashed, and now they've been attacked twice. Just bad luck all around. But still, they pushed on, determined to get to Fort Henry, moving as quickly as they could without drawing too much attention to themselves. Still, though, a man's got to eat. And since Hugh Glass was one of the more experienced men of the expedition, he often took on the hunting responsibilities, a job that caused him to travel alone ahead of the group, hoping to scare up some game, which is exactly what he was doing one day in either late August or early September of 1823, not too long after they were attacked by the Hadasta and the Mandan. The party was in present-day Perkins County, South Dakota, in the area where the Shade Hill Reservoir is now located, just west of the Standing Rock Indian Reservation. As Glass was quietly stalking along, probably hoping for some venison or a nice plump antelope, it was his great misfortune to instead come across a mama grizzly bear and her two cubs. Not the greatest of situations to be in. Full disclosure, I've never seen a bear of any type in real life, much less been attacked by one. But judging by the various real-life bear encounters I've read about and heard about, there's not a whole hell of a lot of time to react. I'm sure it wasn't any different for Glass. This wouldn't be the type of situation where he saw the bear coming from a long distance away and had plenty of time to calmly defend himself. 
If he did hear or see the bear coming, it was probably at the very last second, and more than likely, the attack happened in the blink of an eye. One second, he was quietly hunting for game, and the next second, he was in a fight to the death with an animal that outweighed him by several hundred pounds. If you get a chance, give episodes 86 and 87 of the Meat Eater podcast a listen. These episodes are titled Meat Tree Parts 1 and 2, during which the Meat Eater crew tells their own story of being attacked by a grizzly while they were eating lunch one day. A line that stuck with me was the host Stephen Ranella saying that it happened so quickly, it was as if you were sitting at home on the couch watching TV just to turn your head and see a grizzly bear just mere feet away from you. That's how quick it was. And Ranella wasn't even alone like Hugh Glass. This was like a group of five or six dudes, and not a one of them got off a shot. The great Latvian eagle Giannis Putellis had the presence of mind to hit the grizzly with his trekking pole, while another member of the crew actually tripped and fell on top of the bear and rode its back all the way down a hill. The other guys thought the bear had grabbed him. It was total pandemonium. I'm telling you, you gotta listen to those episodes and hear the way they have to tell it. Very, very interesting story. And it just goes to show how fast and chaotic such a situation could be. And while that was a real charge, not a false one, they got extremely lucky and none of them ended up getting hurt by the bear. That would not be the case for Hugh Glass. He attempted to flee up a tree, but it was no use. He got himself a good old-fashioned mauling, the angry mama bear repeatedly tearing into his flesh. Now, I couldn't determine if Glass was able to fire off his rifle or not, but I think he did as his companions soon came to his aid and were able to kill the bear. I assume they either heard his shot or his screams and came running. There is at least one account I read that states that Hugh himself killed the bear, but I don't know about that. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I'm pretty sure it was his fellow trappers who did so. And what they found when the smoke cleared wasn't pretty. Giant chunks of flesh and skin were missing from Hugh's hip and lower body. Puncture wounds from the bear's teeth and those massive paws covered his torso. His throat was torn in such a fashion that he was breathing out both sides of his windpipe. He had quite literally been torn to shreds and was somehow miraculously still clinging to life. Glass looked so bad that his companions didn't think he was going to survive throughout the night. But he did. Come sun up, the tough Hugh Glass was still alive. Barely. You know, if this were to happen nowadays, you'd be life flighted to the nearest hospital. But there weren't no helicopters in 1823. And the nearest hospital was probably over a thousand miles away, somewhere back in civilization. The men of the trapping expedition didn't have no surgeon along with them, and I'm sure the closest any of them had ever come to doing any doctoring was probably rubbing ointment on their horses or crudely stitching up a flesh wound. The only thing they could do for Glass was try to make him as comfortable as possible and keep him company as he made his journey to the other side. But as morning turned into evening, they started getting nervous. As I've already established, they were in hostile territory and in a hurry. Now they stopped moving all together to tend to this dying man, but for how long? They couldn't stay where they were indefinitely, and they just couldn't leave Glass to die alone, so they improvised. They made a litter to carry him with, just assuming that he'd soon die anyway. But once again, Hugh Glass refused to give up the ghost. For two long days, his companions took turns carrying him on that litter, slowly picking their way north to the fort. Too damn slow to suit Andrew Henry. Were they to continue along at this pace, it'd put the whole damn party at risk. Finally, he made an executive decision. They'd leave Glass, but only if two men would volunteer to stay behind and see him buried. And to sweeten the pot, he offered up an $80 bonus to whoever decided to stay. Roughly $2,000 in today's money. Finally, two men stepped forward. One, an experienced hand like Glass by the name of John Fitzgerald. The other, a mere boy, not yet out of his teenage years, named Bridger. Jim Bridger. And so the expedition pushed onwards, minus these two men and the wounded Glass who, by the way, still showed zero signs of improvement. The opposite, in fact. The only way they could even tell he was still alive was the ragged, uneven breathing and little flutters of eye movements every now and then. I'm sure Fitzgerald and Bridger figured they'd wait a few hours for Hugh to expire and then hoof it to catch up with the main party. I'm certain they didn't expect to stay there for days waiting on glass to die. But that is exactly what ended up happening. Five days, in fact, until they too had a decision to make. Should they stay and continue to put their own necks on the line for a dying man as they agreed to, or attempt to catch up with the expedition before they got too far ahead? Just put yourself in their shoes or moccasins for a moment. There was no question about whether or not Hugh Glass was dying. He wasn't just slowly improving with each day that passed, at least not that they could tell. What was the reasonable expectation for Fitzgerald and Bridger at this point? Nobody expected Glass to hang on for five more days. I doubt Fitzgerald or Bridger would have volunteered had they known it would be so long. And like I said, what was the reasonable expectation? How much longer were they expected to stay? Each day they waited, they were closer to being discovered by a roving war party of Arikara or Blackfeet. So they too decided to leave Glass. 
They settled him down next to a spring and took all of his gear. His rifle, his knife, his fire kit, his tomahawk. All the tools a man would need to survive. And this was under the assumption once again that he was 100% going to die. Dead men do not need such items. They also wouldn't have wanted to leave anything behind that a war party could one day use against them. Especially a fine rifle like the one that Glass owned. So yeah, the two men gathered up these scant supplies and headed out to Fort Henry to meet up with the rest of the crew. Who would assume that Glass had simply died, as expected? But it turns out Hugh Glass was just one of those men cursed with being too damn tough. Whoever's in charge of such things decided that it wasn't his time to die just yet. Eventually, God only knows how long he laid there motionless and alone. He came to and become somewhat aware of his situation. He gathered up enough strength to pull his throbbing and broken body to the spring and attempt to take a drink. After a while, he mustered up the strength to half-ass clean his wounds, at least the ones he could reach. I gotta imagine that he lost consciousness several times. He'd probably wake up, take a sip, vomit, pass out, rinse and repeat. But eventually, his mind lost just enough fogginess for him to really take stock of his situation. He was still alive somehow, but completely alone. He had no food and no rifle, no knife, no flint and steel, no blanket, nothing but the raggedy clothes on his back. Well, that and two big-ass balls and a burning desire to live. A desire that would burn hotter and hotter the more he considered how he was left alone with nothing. Bastards could have at least left him with a knife. And his rifle. Oh, he loved that rifle. Finest rifle most of the men of that outfit had ever laid their eyes on. Like I touched on at the very beginning of this episode, there is some evidence that Hugh Glass apprenticed for a rifle maker once upon a time in Philadelphia. As such, he was knowledgeable of firearms and he knew a good quality rifle when he saw one. And his rifle was said to have been one of the finest ever produced in Pennsylvania. Worth more than several horses. He loved that rifle and now that damn Fitzgerald had his greasy fingers all over it. I'm emphasizing the rifle for a reason. Unlike that movie The Revenant, Hugh's story is not one of revenge. He wasn't trying to avenge a non-existent son murdered at the hands of Fitzgerald. The real story is that of survival, against all odds, and his quest to get his belongings back, namely his rifle. And don't worry, we will discuss The Revenant more here shortly. As far as Glass is concerned, he knew he had to move. He also knew that the nearest vestige of civilization was Fort Kiowa, about 250 miles away on the Missouri, present-day South Dakota. The location is now underwater in a reservoir known as Lake Francis Case, not too far from the town of Chamberlain. And that's where he was headed, slowly, just crawling at first. Finally, when he could muster up the strength, he started to limp. He ate what he could find when he could find it. Insects, snakes, anything he could kill or collect with his bare hands. And at this point, his back wounds were crawling with maggots. Which, as crazy as it sounds, is a good thing. The maggots actually eat away at the dead, infected flesh, helping to avoid gangrene. One day, Glass got real lucky and came upon some wolves feasting on a freshly killed buffalo calf. He waited till they stuffed themselves and moved in, making off with what remained of the carcass, dining that night on cold, raw bison flesh. Now, I'm not going to lie. While I do enjoy a nice rare steak on occasion, I've never seen the appeal of eating raw meat. I've never even had sushi. But Josh, not all sushi is raw. Yeah, yeah, I know. You know what I mean. Y'all ever heard of those psychos up there in Wisconsin that eat what's called a cannibal sandwich? Just raw ground beef on rye bread with a little bit of onion? Sounds disgusting. But, and this is a big but, pun intended, my fat ass has never been starving before. Put me on the prairie like Hugh Glass without anything to eat for well over a week, and I'm sure I'll be stuffing anything edible I can find into my damn mouth, raw meat included. No homo. Based on these circumstances, that uncooked bison meat might just have been the tastiest meal that Hugh Glass had ever had his entire life. He'd lay low for a few days, finishing off the rest of the carcass and letting his wounds continue to heal. Before too long, he was feeling somewhat refreshed and moving at a faster pace. Eventually, he reached the Missouri River and was able to obtain a hide boat from some friendly Lakota, using it to float downstream to his destination. Finally, sometime in October of 1823, a good month and a half after he was mauled by that bear, Glass half-limped into Fort Kiowa. Now let's put this into perspective. I did a quick Google search and I found a 250-mile pilot section of the Great Plains Hiking Trail. This path takes you from Scotts Bluff, Nebraska to Bear Butte, South Dakota. This was not the route that Hugh Glass was on, I'm just using this to make a point. I personally, if I were to hike this trail all 250 miles from Nebraska to South Dakota, I gotta figure it'd take me anywhere from two to four weeks, depending on how many miles a day I can hike. I have this little app on my phone that tells me how many steps I take daily, and according to it, I usually get about 16 or 17,000 steps. 
This past Thursday, it says that I walked seven miles, which makes sense considering that I'm on my feet at work and constantly moving around. So walking 10, maybe 12 miles a day wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility, especially if I had some nice hiking boots. Maybe some of those fancy Solomon GTX shoes I've been eyeing, coupled with some comfy trail socks. And since it's going to take me a little while to hike all 250 miles, I'd have a backpack loaded with supplies. A lightweight tent, a sleeping pad, a sleeping bag, maybe a little inflatable pillow, a nice compact rain jacket of some sort to keep me dry, a hat to keep the sun off my face. I could even pack one of those little things of sunblock and bug spray to keep the rest of my body protected. I'd probably have a trekking pole so I don't do too much damage to my knees. I'd have a few big lighters and some tinder to start a fire at night. A lot of people like to use cotton balls and Vaseline, but I'm a fan of this stuff called wet fire. These little white tabs you just break apart and they burn for a good long while. Plenty of time for you to get some kindling and get a good fire going. I'd bring along some water, but since I'm walking 250 miles, I would definitely run out. So I'm going to need a water filter or maybe one of those fancy SteriPens to sterilize the water. At very least, I need some sort of water purification tablets. Our modern stomachs are just not used to all that bacteria one finds in streams and creeks. I'd have to bring some food. Some of those freeze-dried meal-in-a-bag type concoctions that are all the rage these days. They weigh almost nothing, and I've had them before. They're not bad. I'd probably throw in some candy bars and some beef jerky for the hell of it. I'd have a knife, at the very least, as far as tools go. A headlamp or flashlight with some extra batteries, a good GPS or a compass and map. Probably even pack a book or two with me. Something to read on my breaks or around the fire at night. With all of that, it wouldn't be too bad. I have zero doubt that I can make all 250 miles on my own with no problem. But Glass had none of these things. Absolutely nothing. By the time he reached Fort Kiowa, he would have had a whole new set of wounds just from this damn hike. His feet would have been a bloody blistered mess. He would have been extremely gaunt and sunburnt. It gets cold in South Dakota in October, so you know he was freezing his ass off every night. For over a month, he had nothing to eat but bugs and raw meat, no filtered water, no fire to keep him warm, no sleeping bag, and no GPS to guide him. Oh, and throw in the fact that he's surrounded by hundreds of hostile Native Americans who would have been overjoyed to adorn their lodgepoles with his scalp. Doesn't sound like an easy trip, does it? Needless to say, it's a journey that not many of us could make nowadays. It takes a certain toughness and a whole lot of frontier know-how. Glass could have just given up and laid down and died, but he didn't. Kept his head down and put one foot after the other, and slowly plodded along, one mile at a time, and he survived. Believe it or not, Hugh Glass would not linger at Fort Kiowa. Turns out there was a small party that planned on heading up to the Mandan villages 300 miles upriver to trade for furs. Glass borrowed a rifle and shot and powder and a few other supplies on credit and joined up with these guys. Thinking it might put him just a little closer to catching up with Fitzgerald and Bridger and getting some of his shit back. Much to Hugh's disgust, the river traveling was taking too dang long for his taste. After a few weeks of slow going, he had the men drop him off on shore, opting to strike out for the Mandan village, alone and on foot. Now, this sounds kind of rash, but it turned out to be a good decision on his part, as he did dodge a major bullet, or an arrow, so to speak. As a few days later, the remaining men on the boat were killed by an Arikara war party, the same tribe that Glass and his friends had previously clashed with. If Hugh had stayed on that boat, he would have probably perished right there along with him. Even still, though, he almost got himself killed just a few miles away from the Mandan village. Another Arikara war party, this is going to be a trend throughout Hugh Glass's entire life, spotted him and headed his way, hoping to pick him off. Luckily for him, the nearby Mandan saw what was going on and came to his aid, whisking him away to the safety of their village. At this point, Glass has survived numerous attacks by American Indians, attacks that saw the death of at least 21 of his fellow trappers, survived a mauling by a grizzly bear, and walked hundreds of miles alone with little to no supplies. Yet he was still determined. Even though he had just survived the reed once again, and even though he knew the area was still crawling with him, he didn't waste no time at that Mandan village. He left during the cover of darkness and headed out again, alone, towards the mouth of the Yellowstone and Fort Henry. By the way, that hypothetical 250-mile hike I mentioned a few minutes ago, with all that modern camping equipment, you know, the little scenario I played out saying I would make it with no trouble, that was with the assumption that the weather would be nice. You know, maybe late spring or early summer. This little jaunt the glass took from the Mandan to Fort Henry was in the dead of winter. I'm sure by this point he had obtained a buffalo robe or something of the like, and he almost certainly had the capability to build a fire. But still, that's a hard journey. We're talking North Dakota winter. Once he finally made it to Fort Henry, he found that it was abandoned. Unbeknownst to Glass, a new Fort Henry had sprung up on the Little Bighorn in present-day Montana. 
How Glass knew the location for this new Fort Henry is a mystery. There is speculation that a note was left at the old fort. He pushed onwards toward his new destination, and finally, on New Year's Eve, 1823, a weather-beaten Hugh Glass stepped inside the new Fort Henry, likely scaring the living hell out of everyone there. Remember, they all thought he was dead. They'd seen his body torn to shreds, heard him struggling to breathe out of the holes in his throat. The only ones who knew the truth were Fitzgerald and Bridger, but even they would have believed that he died shortly after they left him. And yet there he stood, having defied all odds and demanding to know the whereabouts of the two sons of bitches that made off with his rifle and left him to die. Glass would soon learn that Fitzgerald wasn't there, having departed for Fort Atkinson sometime prior. But young Bridger was there. Legend goes that Glass approached Jim Bridger, his eyes burning holes into the younger man's soul. The entire fort was silent as the young man waited for the punishment he knew was coming. The punishment he felt he deserved. The guilt of leaving Glass had been eaten away at him for months. Better to die than live with such a hidden shame. Finally, Hugh opened his mouth and addressed Bridger. Homo say what? He asked the young trapper. Confused, not really sure what he just heard, Jim glanced at Glass and replied, Uh, what? All of a sudden, Glass jumped up, pointing to Bridger. You hear that, everyone? Jim Bridger's a homo. The entire place erupted in laughter as Hugh further escalated the situation. His face now mere inches away from Bridger, he loudly asked the young man, you got any up dog, Jim Bridger? The youngster, more confused now than he'd ever been in his whole damn life, having no idea what the hell was going on, replies back asking Glass, what's up dog? Not much. What's up with you? More laughter from the other trappers. Everyone's falling down, pointing fingers at Jim Bridger like he's the biggest damn fool they'd ever seen. Finally, having pity on the kid, Glass pats him on the back and extends his hand in friendship. I'm just giving you a hard time, Jim. No harm, no foul, eh? As Bridger, still fucking confused, reaches out to shake the old frontiersman's hand, Glass quickly pulls it away, deftly running his hand over the top of his ears as if to slick back some hair, and yelled, Psych! Everyone in the force was howling with laughter as an embarrassed Jim Bridger ran away, red-faced with tears streaming down his cheeks. And no, almost none of that is true. Uh, Glass did find Bridger, and he did have pity on the young man, and he forgave him. He knew the kid was green and likely pressured by the more experienced Fitzgerald, who, as far as Glass was concerned, knew better. According to one source, Hugh told Bridger, quote, You have nothing to fear from me. Go. You are free. For your youth, I forgive you. Another version of the story says that Glass told Bridger that he would leave him, quote, to the punishment of your own conscience and God. If they forgive you, then be happy. So that's good. It's nice to have mercy. Still, though, Glass did really want that damn rifle at his back, and he was determined to track down Fitzgerald and, if need be, take it out his ass. He was getting that rifle back one way or the other. And finally, for the first time since he began crawling from that spring, he was forced to wait. The weather was just too bad, even for him. Ended up being stuck there at Fort Henry until the end of February 1824. Once the weather cleared a bit, Andrew Henry had a dispatch he wanted to deliver to his partner, William Ashley, a job that Glass readily volunteered for, taking four other men with him and headed to Fort Atkinson. And of course, Glass and these four men were soon attacked by the Arikara. At some point along their journey, they reached the Platte River and constructed what they called a bull boat, a green buffalo hide stretched over a wooden frame. Figured it might be a little bit easier letting the river do all the work for them. And they were right. Everything was just going swimmingly at first, until they reached the area of present-day southeastern Wyoming, where the Laramie River meets the North Platte. As they were floating along, they encountered a Native American encampment on the bank. One of the natives, speaking Pawnee, remember Glass lived with the Pawnee so he understood the language, called for the trappers to come to shore, which they did, except for one, a guy named Dutton. Hell, they even left their rifles in the boat with Mr. Dutton, thinking that these Pawnee were friendly. Once surrounded, Glass quickly realized that they had been duped when he heard some of the warriors speaking in what sounded like Arikara. Casually as he could, without giving any alarm, he warned his companions that they needed to make a break for the boat ASAP as possible. Finally, when the moment was right, they took off running. Two of them were quickly cut down, but Glass and a man named Marsh were able to escape. The two men were separated and unable to make it to the river, choosing instead to hide out in the brush until the sun went down. Marsh was eventually able to hook up with Dutton, who had hauled ass downriver as soon as the attack started. As for Glass, they assumed he had gone under with the other two. Once again, Hugh Glass found himself alone, without a rifle, surrounded by hostiles, and as far as anyone else knew, he was a dead man. And once again, he proved just how much of a badass he was. Matter of fact, he was sitting pretty compared to that last time he was put afoot. 
Hell, at least he wasn't bleeding and covered in maggots. And he might not have had a rifle, but he did possess a good knife and a flint and steel to make a fire with. Tools that he was quoted as saying made a man feel right pert when he is three or four hundred miles from anybody or any place. With these meager yet adequate provisions, he began his journey, reaching Fort Atkinson in June of 1824, well over three months after he had departed Fort Henry. By the way, I checked the GPS on my phone and that same journey can now be made by car in about 10 hours or so. It's so crazy how far we've come, how easy everything is nowadays. And yet we still manage to get so impatient and start bitching and moaning by the slightest inconvenience as we comfortably sit, watch the miles pass us by in our air-conditioned vehicles. As for Hugh Glass, he demanded to see Fitzgerald as soon as he reached Fort Atkinson. Only problem was Fitzgerald was now an employee of the United States Army. That meant that if Glass laid his hands on the man, he'd risk a hangman's noose. However, the officer on duty upon hearing Hugh's story did retrieve his rifle from Fitzgerald and return it to its rifle owner. The rifle came with a warning, though. As long as Fitzgerald works for the Army, he belongs to us and is not to be touched. Forget about him and move on. Which Glass did, but not before also being given a little bit of money as an impeasement. $300 worth. According to my magical inflation calculator, that comes out to about 8000 in today's money. Not a fortune by any means, but more than enough to see Glass get himself properly outfitted. Was it worth getting mauled by a bear and left for dead and surviving several lone hikes through hostile territory? Probably not. Was it as satisfying as beating Fitzgerald within an inch of his life? I doubt it. But it was better than nothing. He'd take the money and bide his time. Who knows, maybe he'd encounter Fitzgerald down the trail sometime, when the man no longer worked for the army. And then, Glass could have his druthers. In the meantime, Hugh had other things on his mind, though. Like Beaver! He joined up with an expedition headed to Santa Fe and took to trapping the Gila River for a while. About a year later, he relocated to Taos and was hired to lead a fur trapping expedition into present-day Colorado, which in those days was Ute territory. A trip that saw Hugh catch an arrow in his side. Neither he nor his companions could get the arrowhead out, so he just dealt with it for another 700 miles. Until he finally got back to Taos and had somebody cut it out with a straight razor. He was just one tough dude. A few months later, Glass joined up with a group bound for the Yellowstone River country, an expedition that would take place between the years of 1827 and 1829, during which time he would attend the Trapper's Rendezvous at Bear Lake near present-day Evanston, Wyoming, and possibly even the 1829 Rendezvous at Pierre's Hole. Now, these rendezvous I touched on before, but they were set up so that instead of the Trappers hauling all their hides all the way from the Rocky Mountains to St. Louis, they could just meet up at a predetermined location, the Rendezvous, and sell their plues there. Caravans from back east would make the long journey in wagon trains loaded with all the supplies the trappers would need for another season in the mountains. It was also a great excuse for them to let their hair down and get a nice drunk on. The rendezvous ended up being a big party that would last well over a month. A man like Hugh Glass would go in and, if he was smart, go ahead and sell all of his plues and use that money or store credit to resupply. He's going to need spare locks and flints for his rifle, plenty of lead and powder, a few good Hudson Bay blankets, He'd lay in a stock of Green River knives, flour, salt, coffee, maybe sugar and tobacco. He'd likely have to purchase more traps or at least pay to have his existing traps repaired. He'd buy a lot of stuff that the Native Americans he'd encounter would be interested in. Trade items like ribbons and mirrors and cloth and paint and beads. And there were a lot of friendly tribes that attended these rendezvous as well. A man like Hugh Glass would trade with them for some new buckskins and several new pair of moccasins. Maybe purchase some pemmican for the lean times. But only after he bought his necessary supplies would he go whoring and gambling and drinking. Now, Hugh Glass was what was known as a free trapper. As such, he was beholden to no living man. He was the king of his world, the cock of the walk, so to speak. Whereas the lowly company man didn't even own his own equipment and oftentimes worked for wages. Not Hugh Glass nor the men like him. At one point, he was so respected that the other free trappers elected him to represent them in a meeting with a guy named Kenneth McKenzie a.k.a. the king of the fur trade and a top dog at the American Fur Company. By 1830, Glass could be found trapping out of Fort Union on the upper Missouri, not too far from the original Fort Henry, where he was headed when he got mauled by that grizzly bear. In addition to trapping, he was also hired as a hunter, supplying the fort with meat. According to the website HughGlass.org, he killed so many bighorn sheep on the hillsides opposite the fort that these hills became known as the Glass Bluffs. There's even an 1874 map of the territory of Montana that shows the bluffs near the mouth of the Yellowstone still being identified by this name. Now, by 1830, Glass would have been pushing 50 years of age. 
a hardened veteran of the frontier, and he was probably feeling his age. I gotta think at this point he was likely content just hanging around Fort Union, doing some trapping here and some hunting there, as opposed to tramping all over the damn mountains like those young whippersnappers, Jim Bridger and Kit Carson. Just a quick side note, remember Jedediah Smith who first accompanied Hugh and the others upriver as one of Ashley's 100? Well, he himself was mauled by a grizzly around the same time Glass was. The bear broke Smith's ribs, scalped him, and even ripped off an ear. And he, just like Hugh, pulled through and survived. For the rest of his life, he would wear his hair long over one side of his head to hide the scars from the attack. Now, Jed Smith was a traveling son of a bitch. He was the first American to cross the Mojave Desert, the first to explore the Sierra Nevadas, and the first to brave the Great Basin Desert. In addition, he was also one of the first to cover some areas of present-day California, Oregon, and finally Kansas, where his life came to an end. It was there in 1831, same time Glass was still up there hunting at Fort Union, that Smith was found by some Comanche. Jedediah was alone and outnumbered, but he still fought like a madman, selling his life dearly. Ultimately, those lords of the Southern Plains prevailed, but it cost him. Smith's body was never recovered. No word on whether or not Glass ever heard of the news of Jed's death. By this point in his life, he had known plenty of trappers who had gone the same way. If anything, Hugh was probably surprised that he himself was still among the living. But he was, and when a new trading post named Fort Cass was built near the mouth of the Bighorn, Hugh left Fort Union and relocated there. This would have been in late 1832, and it wasn't long before Glass was supplying this fort with fresh meat as well. By the way, Fort Cass was located not too far from the second Fort Henry, where Glass found young Bridger or about 60 miles northeast of present-day Billings, Montana. In the spring of 1833, Glass and two other trappers, Colin Rose and Helene Menard, left the fort to go trap some beaver. Now, this wasn't no long journey. They were only headed a short distance away. But sometimes the worst of accidents happen within a few miles from your home. This was still early enough in the year that the rivers riced over. As the three trappers were attempted to cross one such frozen river, they were ambushed by a war party of guess who? You got it. A damn Arikara. Again. And unfortunately, old Hugh was finally out of lives. He and his two companions were caught out in the open, they were killed, and they were scalped. The great Hugh Glass had finally gone under. According to the famous mountain man Jim Beckwith, whose recollections almost always need to be taken with a grain of salt, a neighboring band of the Crow tribe were devastated to hear the news of Glass's passing. He and his trapping buddies were loved by the tribe, and once again, according to Beckwith, at the funeral, the crying and mourning from the crow was, quote, appalling. And he also said, quote, numerous fingers were voluntarily chopped off and thrown into the graves, along with hair and other trinkets. And I don't know about y'all, but I am kind of glad we're no longer compelled to cut off appendages to show our grief. Hugh Glass might have been dead, but in true frontier fashion, the killing certainly wasn't over. The same bunch of Arikara that killed him met up with some fur trappers shortly thereafter on the Powder River. They pulled the same trick they had pulled years before with glass and pretended to be a different tribe, a ruse this party of trappers also fell for. What the Reed didn't expect was for these mountain men to recognize Hugh's prized rifle, which they had taken off his dead body. The trappers confronted the warriors, and when they didn't come up with a good enough answer, they scalped them and burned them alive. How's that for revenge? Now, the head of this little group of trappers was a guy named Johnson Gardner, not to be confused with John Gardner, the man whose parents Glass wrote to way back when. Anyway, this Johnson Gardner guy himself fell into the hands of the Arikara not long after this, and they practiced a little tit for tat, burning him alive the same way he burned their fellow warriors. On and on it goes. Where it stops, no one knows. I don't think anyone west of the Mississippi much subscribed on the whole vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, doctrine. As for the Arikara, their time as a powerhouse on the Missouri was quickly coming to an end. They were plagued by numerous attacks from Lakota, and unfortunately, they, along with the Mandan and the Hidatsa, would just be decimated by the smallpox. Those who survived continued to suffer under the Lakota even as late as the 1860s and 70s, so much so that the United States government even supplied them with guns so they could at least attempt to defend themselves. Some Arikara ended up becoming scouts for the military, just to get a shot to strike back at the Sioux. One of Custer's favorite scouts was an Arikara named Bloody Knife, who perished with the general at the Battle of Little Bighorn. Eventually, what was left of the Arikara, the Mandan, and the Hidatsa settled on the present-day reservation of Fort Berthold in North Dakota. I couldn't find out the current population of the Arikara, but according to IndianAffairs.nd.gov, the population for the three affiliated tribes, which is what the Arikara, Mandan, and Hidatsa are now known as, is 12,204. 
And luckily, the Arikara language still exists. You can hear it spoken in that movie, The Revenant. Which we're gonna get to. Just be patient. As for Jim Bridger, there is some debate on whether or not he was actually the young man who abandoned Hugh Glass and left him for dead. Two men on the expedition, a Daniel Potts and James Kleiman, both stated that Glass was mauled by a grizzly bear, but they never mentioned the names of the men who stayed behind with him. However, in 1839, a man named Edmund Flagg wrote that the two men who stayed behind with Glass were named Fitzgeralds and Bridges. Yes, Bridges, not Bridger. Now, this Flagg guy wasn't there, and he wasn't a trapper. He was a writer and going off of secondhand information. But still, records do show that there were plenty of men living around St. Louis by the name of Bridges. Could one of them have been the man that Flagg wrote about? Or was the writer simply mistaken? It's very possible as his writings are said to be riddled with verifiable mistakes and inconsistencies. Kind of like this podcast. In 1890, an old man named Joseph Labarge, who likewise was not present when Glass got mauled, stated in an interview that tradition identified the young man as being the now famous Jim Bridger. Now, while Labarge was not an eyewitness, he did spend a considerable amount of time on the Missouri around other fur trappers. And it's likely that he would have heard some of these men, Bridger's contemporaries, discuss the issue of whether or not it was him. There was also a Professor Butler who was gathering information on Bridger's life, who obtained a letter from James Stevenson, who had been an assistant naturalist when Jim Bridger was a scout during a government survey of the Yellowstone River in 1856. The two men spent time together, even went hunting together, and according to Stevenson, he and Bridger were engaged in many a discussion. Stevenson said that Bridger shared the story of Hugh Glass, but claimed that there was no desertion. Take that however you want. So the verdict is still out on this. The implication is that the highly respected Jim Bridger left a man to die alone in hostile country, a blight against an otherwise great reputation. I tend to believe it was probably him. However, those that knew Bridger as a grown man would never question his bravery or loyalty to a companion in need. As far as I can tell, it was a youthful mistake that he would never repeat. He'd go on to be one of the first white men to see the geysers in Yellowstone and is credited as discovering the Great Salt Lake in Utah. He'd eventually open up a trading post bearing his name, Fort Bridger, and stay active on the frontier even as an old man, scouting for the army as late as the 1860s, over 40 years after Glass had that encounter with that grizzly bear. Eventually, Bridger's eyesight began fell on him and he moved to a family member's farm in Missouri. It was there in 1881 that he passed away at the age of 77 having become one of the most famous and influential of the so-called mountain men, a legend in his own lifetime. As far as the other man who left Glass behind, John S. Fitzgerald, nobody knows what happened to him, as far as I can find at least. Maybe after he got done working for the army, he moved back east. Or maybe he just simply disappeared. You know, back in those days, you could go off into the wilderness and any number of things could happen. He could have got snake bit or drowned in a river, struck by lightning. He could have froze to death or his horse could have thrown him. Or, just like Glass, he could have been caught by a war party of Arikara. If you happen to know what the ultimate fate of Fitzgerald was, please do not hesitate to contact me at bloodybeaverpodcast at gmail.com. Now, speaking of that movie, The Revenant, let's talk. When I first got wind that this movie was in the works, I got excited. Like, really excited. And it was going to be a major film, not some straight-to-DVD monstrosity or Mickey Mouse made-for-TV special. But still... There was this voice in my head that told me to temper my expectations. And then I heard about the bear rape. I'll never forget the day I was casually scrolling through my phone and came upon an article titled, DiCaprio Raped by Bear in Fox Movie. The short article read, and I quote, The new movie Revenant features a shocking scene of a wild bear raping Leo DiCaprio. The explicit moment from Oscar-winning director Alejandro Inaratu has caused maximum controversy in early screenings. Some in the audience escaped to the exits when the Wolf of Wall Street met the Grizzly of Yellowstone. The story of rural survivalism and revenge reaches new violent levels for a mainstream film. The bear flips Leo over and thrust and thrust during the explicit mauling. Quote, he is raped twice. Not to be outdone, DiCaprio rips open a horse and sleeps naked in its carcass. Story developing. I'm telling you, I still remember where I was when I read this. Obviously, I didn't believe that they were crazy enough to actually have a bear rape Hugh Glass. But still, you know, it did make me want to see the movie even more now that there was some controversy building around it. That article, by the way, was posted on the Drudge Report in January of 2015. Remember 2015? Back when, you know, things were much more normal? 
Now, according to an article I found on Vanity Fair, written by Julie Miller and appropriately titled, Where Did This Insane DiCaprio Bear Rape Rumor Come From? It all stemmed from a veteran Hollywood journalist, Roger Friedman, who reviewed the film on his blog, Showbiz 411, on November 29th. And I guess he has a very different recollection of the bear attack scene than uh, everybody else does. He says, quote, The bear flips DiCaprio's character over on his belly and molests him, dry humps him actually, as he devours him. Alright, so obviously the film does not depict DiCaprio getting raped by a bear. It has the scene where he got mauled by the bear and it's pretty gruesome, but there's no rape. And that's why I really hated The Revenant. I wanted to see a bear rape Leonardo DiCaprio. Who doesn't? Okay, look, I'll admit it. Guilty. No, I'm kidding. Actually, I was a little bit let down by The Revenant, but for different reasons. To be honest, I was a lot let down. Over time, though, I have become a little less judgy. First of all, they changed so much. As I previously mentioned, it's a great story of survival, not of revenge. But they turned it into a full-blown tale of vengeance. Even to the point of creating a fictional Native American son that gets murdered at the hands of Tom Hardy's Fitzgerald. Spoiler alert, by the way. Uh, sorry, should have said that earlier. If you have not seen The Revenant, I am about to ruin the plot for you, so do what you gotta do. Alright, so in the movie, Hugh Glass is driven to avenge his dead son. Remember, in real life, they left Glass by a spring, still alive, just barely. In the movie, however, they bury Hugh alive and murder his son right before his eyes. Then eventually, Fitzgerald goes on the run and is hunted by both Glass and Andrew Henry. Fitzgerald ambushes, kills, and scalps Henry, and that never happened in real life. And then Glass catches up with Fitzgerald. But so do the Arikara. By the way, they had their own little fictional revenge plot as well. One of their daughters had been abducted by some French trappers. So instead of killing Fitzgerald himself, Glass just pushes him into the hands of the Arikara, and they take care of his dirty work. Throw in a bunch of artsy-fartsy scenes of Leo DiCaprio hallucinating and dreaming of his dead Native American wife, and boom, roll the credits. So I guess all that said, it's not that horrible of a movie. The acting is great. I love the look of everything. The actors look like mountain men. I even thought the bear scene and some of the fighting scenes were really well done. But why tell the story of Hugh Glass and change everything? What's the point? Anyway, I gotta mention the Meat Eater podcast once again, since we're talking about The Revenant. Check out their episode 236 titled, Crawling Back from the Dead, where they interview Michael Punk, the author of the novel, The Revenant, from which the movie was adapted. Very interesting interview, and Punk kind of sheds light on why things are different in the movie as opposed to real life, and he shares his thoughts on the whole thing. They also discuss other theories surrounding the death of Hugh Glass that are pretty cool, one of which is a little explosive. I will link to this podcast on this episode's show notes, as well as all the other stuff I've been mentioning. Always check out the show notes on all my episodes. There's a lot of stuff you might be interested in there. For research on this episode, I did lean heavily on the website hughglass.org. Lots of additional resources there for you to check out, including a long list of books for further reading. If you're looking to go on a deep dive on all things Hugh Glass, that would be the place to start. And I guess that's about all I have on Mr. Hugh Glass. Thank you all for listening. Hope you all had a happy Easter. And if you're Jewish, I hope you had a happy Passover. If you're neither Christian nor Jewish, I hope you enjoy burning in hell for eternity. No, I'm joking. Once again, my email address is bloodybeaverpodcast at gmail.com, or you can head on over to bloodybeaver.com and hit that contact button. Or you can hit the send a voicemail icon if you would like to tell me in your own voice how much I got wrong on this episode or how I deeply offended you. If you like what you hear, please follow me on all the various platforms. Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Audible, iHeartRadio, and so on and so forth. Or just go to bloodybeaver.com forward slash follow to see all of the many ways you can listen. It's 100% free. So what do you got to lose? Also, please spread the word. Tell somebody about Bloody Beaver Podcast, especially all you Facebookers. There's a whole bunch of boomers on Facebook missing out on this podcast because one, they don't know what the hell a podcast is. And two, they're too busy getting outraged over politics. Help ease their minds by introducing them to the wild and wonderful world of Bloody Beaver. Shout out to all the usual suspects. Tam Beret, Isaac Sanchez, Bill Richards, Corey Hughes, Teeny Nini, Aho, Faceless AI, Creatures of Darkness, Michael from Texas History Lessons, Jim Urit, or however you pronounce your damn name, CW, Ovi and the Outlaw Saloon, Dangerous Danny Morales, Eric the Red Simpson, Little Danny Simmons, and everybody else who I'm forgetting about. Also, the voice of the people has been heard. 
Due to popular demand, I will be making it a priority to cover the great Chief Joseph. It's not going uh, to be on the next episode, but it will be coming very soon. Also, since we last spoke, the great Larry McMurtry has passed away. You've heard me mention him and his book Lonesome Dove many, many times on this podcast. This is very sad news. I've always felt good knowing that Larry was still alive, and I was always selfishly hoping he'd publish a few more books. So Larry McMurtry, by God, it was quite a party. Something tells me there's a moratorium on renting pigs up there in heaven right now. I was also kind of joking the other day and said we need to track down Cormac McCarthy, sprinkle him with a little bit of holy water, and give him some of Willie Nelson's weed. I don't think I can handle losing both of these great minds in the same year. All right, y'all, that's it for this episode. Try not to get abducted by pirates. If you do, definitely do not tell them any of those lame jokes from the beginning of this episode. Try not to get mauled by a grizzly bear. And for the love of all that's holy, stop eating those damn cannibal sandwiches. You're going to catch the salmonella. Thank you.